roughly the past 50 years, there began to be more of an emphasis to churches, uh, and I believe well-intentioned, to grow and to perhaps come up with some innovative ways by which to attract unbelievers, okay? So I think the intent and the heart in most cases was, was worthwhile and good. And, and the emphasis uh, that was made was to, and I'm being a little overly simplistic just to make a point here, but was to essentially focus on what are the needs of people? What are the needs more specifically of unbelievers? And how as a church can we perhaps design our church to better meet those needs? Now, in some of that, that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong inherently with that. But the problem, what began to occur or really began to occur from the get-go and, and was revealed maybe over time was that it really began with the wrong basis for how, as a church, we do ministry. Instead of uh, really starting uh, with what does Scripture say, and there's a lot of things in Scripture that we have freedom. It doesn't tell you what time to meet on Sunday mornings. It doesn't tell you whether you should have individual seats or pews. It doesn't tell you whether you should collect the offering or have a box. Or you know, There's a lot of things that are just not there, freedom. But there's some essential things that are in Scripture regarding how God has uh, purposed the gospel, how he has purposed the church to advance the gospel. And uh, one of the things that was uh, kind of trendy to help pastors uh, perhaps kind of follow this logic was um, something George Gallup Jr. You may have heard of the Gallup poll. This is his son who uh, is a Christian and was writing some things on how a church and consequently a pastor could be a little bit more savvy in making ministry more conducive towards uh, people. And, and just some random things is that it had to do with the uh, understanding the basic needs of the average American. For example, uh, food and shelter are basic necessities. Seventy uh, percent of respondents indicated that they of uh, this survey felt a need for purpose and meaning of life. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, the the need for relationships. Uh, uh, people who want to feel uh, esteem or appreciated or or feel a sense of that purpose, whatever. Again, there's nothing wrong necessarily in any of those things. Where the, the fault began to uh, show itself was that when a church designs and bases its mission and purpose based upon the needs, quote-unquote, or uh, the uh, wants of people, and we're going to design a church then you basically create a church that really begins over time to morph into something that is kind of unfamiliar with what the New Testament church is about. And so the church becomes much more consumer-driven. You know what I mean by that? Uh, after World War II, uh, there was a great emphasis, you know, in, in advertising and selling products. You know, if you bought and smoked, can you believe there was commercials that if you smoked a certain cigarette, it actually was good for your health? Now, we laugh at the craziness of, but there, you know, there's ads and pictures that you feel more vibrancy, you know, if you, you know, got a camel uh, or a lucky stripe, whatever, uh, stripe, uh, but, uh, and so marketing was to find out what are the needs, what's going to satisfy people, and how can we make this detergent, how can we make this car, how can we make the cigarettes, how can we make uh, ketchup, whatever it is, where that person buys it with the thought that if I do this, if I purchase this, it's going to make me happy. If I buy that car, single men, I'm going to get that girl in the ad. You know, if I drink that drink, if I buy that soda, smoke that, whatever it is, then it is appealing to some need that's going to perhaps make me happy, give me a sense of fulfillment. And really what has happened is that pop culture way of, of marketing itself in the, in the advertisement world, we kind of brought that 
in the past 50, 60, 70 years into the church of how do we market the church in a way that is going to appeal to people's wants and needs. And so maybe when we get them here, then we'll kind of, you know, do a bait and switch and tell them, you know, the gospel or whatever. But, but it really is a marketing strategy that really, if you go back a little further, uh, you begin to see the roots of this idea of a sense of appealing to want to find that fulfillment of life. I mean, look, we all desire fulfillment in life. We all de- desire to have purpose and meaning. That's something I believe is God created in us. Would you agree? Right? So, so again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm really kind of I'm, I'm, I'm moving towards making, um, getting into our passage here today. This sense of fulfillment. I mean, I, I thought about this. Even our Declaration of Independence has embedded in it this hunger and pursuit of happiness. Remember, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and what? Right? So, I mean, happiness, we want fulfillment, and we want it now. Now, just to hang on with me a little further, uh, if you go back you can kind of trace some of this right after World War II. There was a very prominent uh, psychiatrist by the name of Abraham Maslow. He died in 1970. And what Maslow did, he came up with the, uh, uh, the theory of human motivation. And this is what he did. He studied the lives of great people. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Eleanor Roosevelt, George Washington, et cetera, et cetera, to try to kind of derive what were some patterns and how these great people lived a life of fulfillment and purpose and wanted to try to kind of find some pattern for the rest of us, okay? And so he came up with this idea that he called the five steps of self-actualization, or more simply, it's just the hierarchy of needs. And I'm going to go through them real quick, so just just hang on, okay? We're, We're going somewhere, all right? Uh, The first need that human beings have, the first need that human beings have is physiological needs. That's a satisfaction uh, of our physiological needs, food, clothing, shelter. That's kind of the first level. The second level is our social needs, to be loved, to belong, acceptance. And so as our physiological needs are met, That produces our social needs, and as our social needs are met, then it produces a safety need, security, financial cushion, uh, security for the future, to live a ton of, you know, uh, without uh, worry about depending on somebody, safety, all those things. And then that produces a sense of well-being and an esteem. If If I have my needs met, and I have, my, I have a sense of being loved and belonging and acceptance, and I have security, then that's going to produce in me self-esteem. It's going to produce a, a well-being, okay, a whole being. And then fifth, the, kind of the, 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 the apex of all this is what Maslow calls self-actualization. That's the sense where he couldn't really define it, but that's kind of the ultimate fulfillment. I've arrived. I'm now a happy, fulfilled person. And so when you look at that, you see how that, that mindset and, and that psychological paradigm became permeated in just basically all of our pop culture. People say, well, you know, I don't believe this or I don't do this or whatever because it doesn't make me happy. Happiness is what drives a sense of, well, Boone theology from I light up my life How could it be so wrong when it feels? Now, doesn't that speak to the way our culture is? It doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. Those are, you know, to what we call a postmodern culture. Michael Youssef was talking about that this morning. You know, it doesn't really matter. It's do I feel happy? Do I feel fulfilled? And if it doesn't fulfill me, and you see what has happened in many corridors of Christianity in the church is that people, maybe you, you choose a church based upon kind of a consumer mentality. 
well, I like their time. You know, the, the messages, you know, most of them are okay. You know, the music is good. The coffee could use a little improvement. But, you know, by and large, if they got some cappuccino, if they got some Starbucks in here, then it'd really jump up. You know, we just, we tend to choose churches like we choose restaurants or we choose how we buy detergent or whatever. Does it fulfill my need? Is it going to make me happy or satisfied? Not whether there's truth. But is it going to make me happy at the end of the day? And so when I got to thinking about that, I thought this hierarchy of needs, this desire to attain fulfillment of life. You remember Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 1.9, he said, there is nothing new under the sun. Solomon said that, son of David, uh, in uh, Ecclesiastes 1.9. And when I thought about that, I thought, you know, when you, when you think about that, that paradigm of Maslow, and just even if you forget Maslow, never hear of his name again, but when you just think about the concept, you think, you know what, I think we've heard this before somewhere. I think this, this, this approach, I, I think there's some familiarity and that maybe where we've seen this in the Bible, where the approach is, you know, what you need is to get your physical needs taken care of. That's what you need to find fulfillment. Uh, you've got to have security. You've got to have that cushion of, 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 self, of security and well-being. And, and, uh, and you need to be recognized. You need to be loved and for people and to have a sense of importance uh, of who you are. I think Maslow might have done well to study one of the people that is probably the most fulfilled person who's ever lived, and that's the life of Jesus. Jesus was completely fulfilled, and uh, I think that Maslow, to pick on him a little bit, and even just our culture, really picked up on some words that are quite much older than when Maslow wrote this in 1943, and how it has become, whether people know the identity or not, it's become embedded in our pop culture, this pursuit of happiness and self-fulfillment. It actually goes back pretty far and then we're just going to stop kind of along the way, part way, and we're going to find something very similar in the language in Matthew chapter 4. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. And it will be on the screen. We're going to read this on the screen. It's in the ESV. Hopefully you brought your Bibles. You can follow along and, and uh, be a participant in the Word this morning. But I want you to look with me in Matthew chapter 4. And this is the event in Matthew, Luke records it as well, John and Mark do not, of what we refer to as the temptation of Christ. And so look with me in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to pray and look at this a little more closely. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter, or the devil, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. 
before we look at the Word this morning. Father, we again approach your Scriptures with uh, a sense of awe and reverence and thanksgiving that we have your divine counsel, Lord, in this book. We thank you that this is the very words of God that we just heard uh, in our midst. We thank you, God, that you have given us a living word that is truthful, trustworthy, that never changes. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight as we open up your word today. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus or the last temptation of Jesus. Now, when we talk about temptation, it's helpful to define it just a bit. We talk about temptation. Temptation is a trial. It's a test. It's a a proving of something. Remember James uh, in chapter 1, verse 2, it's not on the screen, but James says, uh, my uh, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials or temptations, knowing that the testing, same concept of your faith, produces patience or endurance or long-suffering, depending on your version. So when we talk about temptation, it's a solicitation to do that which is wrong. Now, temptation in and of itself isn't necessarily sin. To be tempted is not sin. It is what you do with that temptation. Not now, but uh, you may want to make a little note in James 1, uh, around verse 13 through 15, and you see a digression of how sin leads to death. You know, the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And there in James 1, verse 13, it talks about that when a person is tempted with evil desire, that it shows that that desire in itself is not consummated until the choice to pursue it with the spirit or the mind, and then it goes down this road that leads to sin. But to be tempted in and of itself is not sin. But what I want us to do this morning is look at these three temptations of Christ and see if some of those things that we've heard or that I mentioned earlier, kind of this sense of pursuit of fulfillment and happiness, that we don't see some of that similar language embedded in the words that Satan uses in tempting Christ. So look with me at verses 1 through 2. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. We could just stop there and talk about the Spirit. Remember before that was he was baptized in Matthew 3. Uh, Matthew 3 ends, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He heard the voice from the father, affirms Jesus. And so now Jesus is engaging in several testings to demonstrate his authority. And the first authority that he demonstrates, his authority as the son of God, is against the devil himself. And again, without getting into it, that goes back to Genesis chapter 3, where the Bible talks about this first Adam and Jesus as the second Adam. The first Adam failed, but the second Adam, Jesus, would be victorious. And so we see now Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority over Satan and the evil. And so the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And it says he was, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I bet so. I fast for 30 minutes, and I'm hungry. Uh, Jesus was fasting for 40 days. Hunger goes in cycles uh, and usually settles down if if a person is without food, usually around the 11th day when the body is uh, consuming its own storage of food. And around day 30, roughly around day 30, hunger is now moving into starvation, is already into starvation, and the body actually is beginning to consume in this starvation its own vital organs of this this starvation. People die after 40 days, okay, of starvation. So to say that Jesus is hungry is an understatement, okay? There's real hunger there, and he is in this fast. And fasting, uh, you know, uh, sometimes we don't talk enough about fasting, 
And I know there's a lot of the Daniel fast and all that, and honestly, I, I'm really not sure those are real fasts. The real fast is a person abstaining from food and primarily water. A lot of these other things are just glorified diet plans. I'm sorry, that's just all they are, all right? Uh, the fasting primarily, I know we talk about fasting from media and TV, and I'm not going to watch Seinfeld every night or whatever, and we call that fasting. No, fasting really has to do with abstaining from food, okay? And it is primarily a sense to deny our very foundational physiological craving to focus in God and in prayer. That is what its purpose is. So it is intended to be somewhat of a, a battle of self-denial. It's not going on a hunger strike to get God to do something that God is not going to do. Hello? I'm going to fast until God does this. Well, God will just let you fast and die because he's going to do what he's going to do, right? It's not a hunger strike to, make, to go against the will of God, all right? But notice the strategy the strategy of Satan, he hits Jesus at the point of weakness. Now, food in and of itself is not a bad thing. That's not the point. But his temptation is coming at Jesus. His attacks is coming at a point of weakness in Jesus. And sometimes the attacks that we even may find are not because we're being tempted to do something overtly evil, but it could be often is that we are being tempted to use the, uh, to, in order to gain something, to use the wrong methods or the wrong means to receive something that God is withholding for us or is wanting us to wait. On the surface, it appears innocent. Food, okay? What at verse 3? It says, And the tempter came to him, and notice what he says, if, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Command these stones to become bread. That's pretty logical, isn't it? I mean, you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. I kind of imagine they might be those Hawaiian rolls. That would, that would, that would do me in real quick, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that, that's, that's not in the Bible. All right. But in other words, it's really kind of a common sense. Jesus... Think about this. Now, here again, here's the subtlety that I think most of us who are Christians can relate to. Jesus, you're hungry. God does not want you to be hungry. God has a mission for you. You need your strength. You need to be strong. So why don't you, you're the son of God. I mean, turn these stones into bread. That makes perfect sense and logic. Does, does you ever find that sometimes there's thoughts that come into your arena that are very much common sense, that, that they sound plausible, sounds like a good plan, sounds like that's what I should do, sounds reasonable. You know, I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not doing any overt sin or whatever. But that's the subtlety of the way that often the devil will bring temptation to our life is through what sometimes we just say is common sense. It's a reasonable proposition. Some of you know who Oswald Chambers is, wrote the uh, wonderful devotional, uh, my utmost for its highest. He says this, and I thought it was worth uh, showing. The majority of us do not enthrone God. We enthrone common sense. We make our decisions and then ask the real God to bless our God's decisions. I hear that a lot. You do too. Well, I've prayed about this. Well, who did you pray to? Because what you are wanting to do or what you're suggesting we do is clearly beyond scriptural bounds. There's not any. So, but we just say, but it just feels so right. God does not want me to be happy. I can't tell you how many times that in, in counseling situations and people will just say, look, I just don't believe God wants me to be happy. I mean, that, that he wants me to be unhappy. Let me make sure I get that right. Um, that God doesn't want me to be unhappy. So therefore, that just is the carte blanche to anything that I want to do because what? goes back to what we were saying in the beginning. My fulfillment, my needs is the greatest measurement of what I do or I don't do. I thought it was interesting that Satan is not questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God. 
He says, since you are the Son of God. Notice the attack is coming at Jesus at that most basic physiological level. You need food. You need eat. You need, and that's where the word that I used in this this, uh, first temptation was the word passion. Our passions, our food, our appetites, our cravings that are very real that God has designed and made us. But the problem with our passions, because of our sinful nature, is those passions are often uh, misused instead of being utilized under the authority and submission of Christ. Look at what Jesus says in verse 4. Jesus answers, and every one of his answers is from the Word of God. Specifically, every one of Jesus' answers is from the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of Moses in the Old Testament. Look at what Jesus said in verse 4. But Jesus answered, it is written. If you mark your Bibles, you're going to get to mark that three times. It is written. You see the authority of what Jesus answers. He's not answering his own witty thoughts. He's saying, it is written. The word of God says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That man is more, humans, using man in a generic sense, human beings, we are more than just the collection of our physiological wants and needs. There's something greater than humankind being just responsive to our bare animal instincts of trying to get ourselves full and hungry and get enough sex and comfort and whatever it is that fulfills those passions. You see, you see, you really see how the enemy has hoodwinked generations into the false idea that we are just merely evolved animals that have progressed to a certain higher level. Because if we are just animals, basically, and there's no sense of identity in being created, then why not just act like an animal? Right? And if you want to kill, it's just tissue. It's not, there's nothing inherent in the life that a mother carries in her womb. There's no real purpose. It's just if it does, if that pregnancy is inconvenient and is going to hinder your fulfillment and happiness, then the culture will celebrate you as a hero. It will celebrate you as a hero for choosing your own purpose and destiny. Too bad you had to kill a child along the way because your fulfillment and purpose is what's more important. You think I'm kidding? And I don't watch it. I watch whatever the... But you ever look at some of the award shows and things where they celebrate such heinous acts and do it in the name? Because that is why I'm able to have this Oscar. That's why I'm able to have the Emmy Award because you know what? I made a decision of that which was going to hinder me in fulfilling my purpose and destiny. Jesus said that human beings, we are more than just that. We are created more than just to fulfill our passions. We are created by God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Fulfillment, happiness, feeding on the word of God, in order to do the word of God. Listen, Jesus himself had needs. I mean, here we see he's hungry. He has a physiological need, the first in that hierarchy. Um, Remember when he said the foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? He had needs. He had needs. The Apostle Paul had needs. Paul would uh, write... In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he's talking about this litany, I didn't list it all, of suffering. And he says in verse 27 of 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he says, In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and, and cold and exposure, Paul knew what it was like to suffer. And then the next chapter, as he's continuing in this context, that's when he says, but when he asked the Lord, remember the thorn in the side? 
That was another bit of discomfort, whatever, we're not sure all what it is. But remember when he asked God three times to remove it, take it away? What did the Lord say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There's a second temptation. First one, you put the word passion. This one, I use the word pride. In verses 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 4. Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Bible scholars believe that where Jesus was taken was on the southeast corner of the temple. Uh, the, that corner, the southeast temple, looked out over the Kidron Valley. Josephus, the Jewish historian, estimates that from the pinnacle of the temple on that corner to the, to the bottom is about a 450 drop, 450 foot drop. And the implication that Satan seems to be implying is, is that God is only trustworthy if he rescues you from danger or suffering. If you are really the Son of God, here's a way that you can prove it. In fact, here's a way, not only can you prove it, but Jesus, think about this. Think about when the people, you're doing this all wrong, Jesus. Your marketing strategy is terrible. There's a much quicker way to get to this Messiah thing. If you will just leap, jump from the pinnacle of the temple, it's okay. Because I quoted you the Bible. How many of you know the devil can quote the Bible? But you know, if you, we won't take time to look at it, but if you go, he's quoting from Psalm 91. But if you'll see two things, if you look at this later, we won't do it now. Not only does he omit something from what he quotes, but he certainly, he twists it to a different meaning than it was intended to mean. The devil will do that. You know, and so when people come and they want to use Scripture to justify something of their sin, listen, the devil can quote more Scripture than you and I probably together, okay? That doesn't mean he's quoting it accurately or with the purpose or intended uh, uh, reason of why it was recorded, but he misquotes and he twists the Word of God that if you're the Son of God and you fall from the pinnacle of the temple, the Bible says that the angels will capture you. And as all the people, because you're not doing it out here in the desert, you're going to go to the pinnacle of the temple right here. And when, you, and when you're coming down, the angels will come out of the heavens and they will capture you so that you just float down and your feet softly touch the ground. And you know what the consequence will be? All the people will see that you're really the Messiah. Now, Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing, okay, isn't that a lot quicker than this death and atonement and sacrifice? I mean, isn't that a lot faster? Jesus, you could get, here's a shortcut to being Messiah. It's pretty simple, but notice what Jesus said. Jesus said in verse 7, Again, it is written. Notice there it again. It is written, what? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You do not test God. You don't put yourself in some extreme situation where God is somehow obligated to bail you out. It's presumptuous, if I could say it this way, God is not obligated to bail you out of your presumptuous, stupid, sinful decisions. Now, in grace, sometimes he does, right? How do you know? Because he's done that for me several times, and he's done it for you several times. But you don't presume, here, here it is, maybe this is an easier way of saying it. God sets the agenda. We don't. That's the problem with the word of faith heresy. 
We're not setting and telling God the agenda that he's got to follow just because we demand it. We follow and submit to God's agenda. Jesus is saying, I am submitted to the purposes of God. If in the will of God, Jesus uh, could say it this way, that there comes a, a situation where God has to deliver me, Jesus is saying, I am submitted to the will and purpose of God, and that is his issue and not mine. And I'm not going to presume on him by freelancing and doing something that I think might be a quicker, better way when it was never God's purpose and intent. You see, Jesus many times said, I hear, I see, I speak that which my heavenly Father tells me to do. Jesus was a man on a mission. When you are focused on the mission of God and, and a plausible, good idea that seems to be contrary to what you know is the revealed will of God in your life comes along, you immediately say, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I'm not the one that sets the agenda. I submit to God's agenda. I submit to God's purposes. I don't set those purposes. Man's role, human's role, women, men, is to submit to serve God. God's role is to lead us. First Peter chapter 2 says this pretty clear. It's on your screen. First Peter chapter 2 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but look at this, but he did what? But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. My friends, sometimes the toughest places for you and me in the will and purposes of God is to entrust yourself to him when there's no evidence that things are going the way you think they should go. You want faith? Faith is trusting God in the dark. Jesus said, Satan, I don't set the agenda. You don't set the agenda. It is better to be submitted in the will of God than to be a master outside the will of God. But notice thirdly, we looked at the first temptation of a passion, the second one of pride, third one is power, verse 8 and 9. And again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I've always kind of imagined what, what that would have been. You know, was that just some massive Megatron screen? Or, you know, I don't know what, you know. But what did Jesus see? Did he see perhaps Rome in its day that somehow Satan was able to show some kind of visual of? Of, of Rome and, and all its glory, and they're cheering and, and waving banners for King Jesus? Did he see perhaps uh, remnants of nations all over the world where they see them gathering to acknowledge that Jesus is king? And in this temptation, Satan is saying, Jesus, look, again, you don't have to do this cross thing. You don't have to do this atonement thing. You don't have to do this death thing. There's a better way. I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. Just one little thing. Just one little thing. I want you to acknowledge that there's something I have that you need. I just want you to acknowledge and bow before me. And, man, this would be so much easier, Jesus. Think about it. If you just drop the knee, I tell you what, Jesus, don't even drop the knee. Just between you and me out here, just, just kind of drop your head a little bit. I'll know what you mean. 
No more suffering. No more dealing with, I mean, listen, can you imagine having to deal with those disciples? And by the way, you know one of them's going to turn on you. He's going to sell you out. You don't have to deal with those losers. We can get and cut to the chase right now. All of this, everything, your mission and purpose can be fulfilled. Again, what is Satan offering? First of all, he's, the Bible, Jesus said he's a liar, and he's a liar from the beginning. But he's offering something, one, he doesn't really have power to give. And even if he did, it's through illegitimate means. You don't have to worry about being overthrown because I'll give you control over all the nations. You'll never feel insecure, unsafe. You'll have all the power because I'm going to give you all that power. Jesus, it's not a big deal. But what does Jesus say in verse 10? I like this. He just like, we're done. That's the New Living Message translation. Jesus says, be gone, Satan. We're done. Conversation ended. It is written. He said again, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him, Yahweh, only you will serve. You see, worship, remember what we said when we talked about worship in one of the habits? Worship is worth-ship. Worship is what you give worth to. God and God alone is worthy of our worth, to give worth. Satan is, you are not. You see, what we pursue in life, what we celebrate in life, is what we worship, right? It's what we give worth to, what we celebrate. It's what we give worth to. You may want to look sometime afresh again and Matthew 6, talking about all these needs. Remember Jesus said, uh, do not, uh, you don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. Remember in Matthew 6, he, in the Sermon on the Mount in that area, and then he, he says, look, don't chase after these things. The Gentiles, we'd say unbelievers, they chase after these things. They pursue these things, these ways to find fulfillment and happiness and self-actualization. That's what the world and the culture is obsessed with and pursuing. But Jesus said, but seek first what? The kingdom of God and my righteousness. And he didn't say food and shelter and clothes. They're not important. He said, and then all these things will be what? Added. But what did he say? Seek first the kingdom of God. The world says... Parrots what Satan really was saying. You need power, man. You need to control your own destiny. The world says if you have a sense of security, that's when you're going to find real fulfillment. How many people have trusted in that nest egg or what they thought was the nest egg and thought that was going to bring me the real fulfillment in my later years? And you find out you're just as empty and lost with all the money or security you may have. Or maybe you put all that into Enron stock. Or a guy named Bernie Madoff in New York City was working on your investments. And all that money that you worked so hard to pursue and accumulate so you can buy yourself a little place in Foxwood Estates in Lakeland, Florida. <laughs> Kick your feet up. Enjoy life. There's no security except him. There's no security in this life. There's no self-actualization except becoming and understanding who we are. There's an emptiness in this world, this culture. When we talk about the world. We're not talking about the geographical plan. We're talking about the world, the culture, the system. I think John understood this when he wrote, look at 1 John 2. It'll be on the screen. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world. Do not love the world or what? The things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? 
For all that is in the world, now look at this, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But here here the promise is, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's interesting, and we won't take time to look at it, but again, if you're a Bible student, you may want to make note of this. I think you might know the account in John 6. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? You see, because (laughs) it's interesting that when Jesus begins uh, feeding these these folks, there's 5,000 people and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're without food and they're following the disciples and Jesus around and and he feeds them, probably much more than 5,000 people if the tradition in Eastern culture was just to count the men and you added wives and children, it could have been 10,000, okay? It was a massive group of people. Eastern culture wasn't real worried about precision of numbers like, like we are in the West. But it was a lot of people. Can we just leave it at that? It was a lot of people. And he fed them all. And you remember what they wanted to do? If you read John 6, it's a real long chapter. But they wanted to make him king. Why? Because they got free stuff. Has anything changed? Really, has anything changed? No. They wanted to make him king because they got free bread. You know what, Jesus? And if you look around verse um, verse 66, maybe a little before that, around verse 53... Jesus spoke about their real need. Their real need wasn't their physiological need. See, they thought, well, we got free bread. If we have free bread, we're going to have security. We're going to have protection. You see, all, and hey, we make this guy king, we will be fulfilled for life. Before Maslow ever came along, they were saying, we're going to hit this this self-fulfillment and actualization, and it'll be great if we have Jesus as king. But Jesus said, that's not your real need. Physical bread is not your real need. He says in verse 53, and he began to speak to them about the bread of life. That the real bread they needed was the bread of who he was, the true bread. And around verse 66 of that chapter, it says, from that point on, many left. When they heard about Denial, sacrifice, what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus. It says many who'd gotten the free bread, they were on board until he started talking about this discipleship and denial and suffering. We don't want that. We didn't sign up for that. No, no. Why couldn't you just stop with the free bread? Why'd you have to get it, make it so complicated? That's why Romans 3.11 says, there are none who seek God. Sometimes we'll say, you know, everybody's seeking God. No, no, they're not. They're seeking a God, but they are not seeking God. You know what they're seeking? They're seeking all the things that the Creator can provide for them, but the last thing we want in our sinful state is God. Do you understand what I'm saying? The last thing we want is God. We want all the free bread that he can bring. But don't give me demands. Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me how to order my marriage. Don't tell me how to have an ethical way that I live. Don't tell me what it means to be a person of righteousness and holiness. I don't want that. I just want the free bread. But our real need, our real need is we need Jesus. Here's here's four quick takeaways this morning. Four quick takeaways. Matthew 4 is a reminder that we have a deceptive enemy in Satan. Remember what John 8, 44, Jesus said, I paraphrased it. Jesus said he, speaking of Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I forget what translation it says, but it says that when he speaks, 
He lies, and lying is his native language. There is no truth. We have an enemy who is seeking to deceive us. And you know what? He's not going to jump out in front of you in a red suit and a pitchfork. The Bible says that he comes as a master of disguise. In fact, as like an angel of of light. Something good. Something helpful. Something that will make your life more fulfilling and better. Secondly, the Christian will face temptation until we die. I hope that's sobering. It was sobering when I wrote it at 5 o'clock this morning because I changed it. I didn't write it, but I, just, but I edited it. And I said, no, it needs to be that we will face temptation, not just in a general sense, but we will face temptation until we draw our last breath in this life. I don't know about you, but maybe some of you can relate, but I thought some of this would get easier the older I got. First Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape. See, the problem is, if we think back to situations that we got ourselves into and said, you know what, I don't know what happened. It, it just, just came over me and I, I, I lost control. No, you didn't. You chose to do what you did. Quit lying. You chose to do what you did. You got in the car, you went to the ATM, you went to the there, you went to the... You chose all... God, how many times perhaps has God given us multiple ways of escape? But because we're so hard-headed and hell-bound to make and decide that we're going to do this because this is what's going to make me happy, I deserve this, and we, fa- we fall headlong into sin and disobedience, and we have nobody to blame but our own self. Quit blaming your mother, your father, your brother, your uncle, your in-laws, your outlaws. Quit blaming people. Take responsibility for your sinful actions. And as God gives you the way to escape, he may say, you know what? Get rid of the phone. He may say, cut the internet. He may say, change jobs. He says, I've given you a way of escape. But we will face temptation until we die. There's a false teaching that's permeated in different pockets that somehow that we can attain a certain plateau of sinlessness, that we can actually reach a place where we don't sin. That is a lie. That is a lie. We will battle sin until we die. And I have this thinky, this little theory that I think that as we get older, unrestrained and uncontrolled and unconfessed, unmortified, to use an old Puritan, actually it's a Bible word, uh, putting to death sin, dealing with sin in our life. Here's another way of maybe saying it. Continuing to run the red lights of life. I have this theory. It's really not a theory because I can think of examples that the older we get, you know, there's just certain things that begin to happen with age. You know, we start forgetting stuff and we're not as sharp. You know, just things happen in the natural. Okay? Can I get an amen to folks over 55? All right, good. But you know what? That unrestrained pet sin or sins in your teens and 20s and 30s, as you get older and you've kind of refused to put that and let God deal with that in your life, that the older you get, it gets more difficult. Let me just say, here's another way. That pet alligator that came from the pet store gets big. It grows. And all of a sudden now, what you kept under control in your 20s and 30s, 
60, 70, with lots of free time, maybe a little more expendable income, whatever the situation, guess what? You find yourself indulging in sins that you never imagined. You ever read the Polk County Sheriff arrest sheet every once in a while where Grady puts it all on there? How many do you see of men over 60 years old? A lot. A lot. Don't kid yourself. We'll fight it till the day we die. Thirdly, Jesus shows us we have a mighty weapon in the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I believe that we underestimate the power of the Word of God. The, David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not what? But you got to know it before you quote it. And fourth, we have a great sympathizer in Jesus. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let me read you from the New Living Translation. Same verse. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Because Jesus himself has been through the storm of temptation, he understands and he can forgive. Let me just wrap it this way, wrap it up this way. Real fulfillment. Jesus was the most fulfilled human being who's ever lived. Real fulfillment in this life and in the life to come for the believer is found only in Christ and Christ alone. Our satisfaction in him alone. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Idolatry at its very core is us finding dissatisfaction in God. Because idolatry is us trying to fulfill a need in our life, whatever you want to put on that need, outside of the means that God has intended. If God hasn't answered that need in your life, then maybe it's because God has not answered that need in your life. That's pretty profound, isn't it? Maybe he has a reason. And the reason for you is to trust him when you don't have anything to hang on to except him. Because he is trustworthy. Jesus understood that. And that's why it was just a ridiculous banter of what Satan was trying to do. Seek first, Jesus said, it's on the screen, I quoted it earlier. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot provide happiness apart from himself. And what it takes us a while to figure out, when we've, when we've tried to cash in all our counterfeit money that we've collected through life, and we realize it doesn't do us any good, we realize there's only one that can bring us the joy and happiness. And that's him. I leave with this quote that I've used before from Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries, five missionaries who was killed in Ecuador in 1956. He said, a man, a woman, a man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he can't lose. You see, when we are centered in the purposes of God, let me say it this way, I'd rather be insecure in the will of God than to be leaning on a false security outside. That's why Jesus could just say, leave, time's up, get out of my sight. Why? Because not only was he the son of God, but he like us, because he's given it to us, he's given us his authority. Why do you think a little 
four-foot man can stand out in the middle of 98 and have tractor trailers come to a stop if he's wearing a uniform and a badge? Is it because they fear he's going to jump on their truck and turn it over? No, because that little tin badge from the Polk County Sheriff's Department or LPD or whatever it is gives him authority. It's not inherent in him, but that authority is in someone else. You run over me, pal, you're going to have Grady on your doorstep. How much more does the child of God, by the word of God and the identity of who Christ is in us, that we have the authority to tell Satan, leave. Flee the devil, resist the devil, and he will, he will leave, he will flee. Let's stand to our feet as we close this morning.